Welcome to the Christian Combatives Monday Megasode. The purpose of these Megasodes is to mirror all of the YouTube and Rumble content up on the podcast. All the audio is preserved and presented here in its original and sometimes substandard form as it appeared in the video from start to finish, music included. The titles of these videos are listed in the podcast description. Today's episodes include Three Reasons Non-Christians Should Study Scripture, 50 caliber gospel word of the day Barabbas, 50 caliber gospel word of the day Jesus, 50 caliber Splagnizomai, and 50 caliber Tetelestai. Enjoy. All right, so you're not a Christian. There could be any number of reasons how you got to this point, but the, but, but the reality is right now you're not a Christian. And maybe you don't believe other people should be either. Maybe you just believe that maybe you're just not a Christian. Well, I think that these three reasons are worth considering as to why you should still study scripture. Number three, the third reason why you should study scripture is so you should know what you're opposing. It's, it's it, a simple concept, really. It's avoiding straw men. You say Christianity is false. What Christianity teaches is immoral. What happens, what the Bible claims happened historically is ahistoric. But the thing is, to accurately make any of these claims, you have to actually know what's in the Bible. So if you don't know what's in the Bible, then you're just attacking a straw man. It's the fallacy. You're attacking something that doesn't actually exist. You say, ah, I don't like you Christians because you Christians did the Crusades. And then somebody will say, wait a minute. The Crusades, huh? Was that biblical? Was it uh, everything that happened there in the Crusades? Was there any uh, biblical guidance on how you're supposed to act and how you're supposed to, you know, Matthew 28, spread Christianity? Anything like that? And you're like, oh, uh, I don't know, probably they had crosses on their shields, right? <laughs> I mean, if that's the extent of your argument, we're going to ramp it up a little bit. So if you want to oppose Christianity, if you want to, you should know what it is. You should know what it is that you're saying isn't true or is evil or nobody should believe or maybe just you don't believe. That's that's the reason why you should study scripture, to avoid that straw man fallacy. Now, reason number two, why you should study scripture as somebody who doesn't believe it. Other people believe it. Other people also claim to believe it. And they aren't necessarily the same person. When somebody says to you, say you're watching TV and somebody says, oh, well, you see, you send me some money and I'm gonna make sure that you're healthy. And I'm going to make sure that you're wealthy. I don't know why George W. Bush is the, uh, <laughs> the preacher on TV. But say some dude on TV is saying that, you know, send him some money and uh, God says he'll, um, you know, I don't know, give you a mansion or something. Well, you, if you're not familiar with Scripture, you could be like, I don't know, maybe the Bible says that probably. This guy says it, so he's probably right, right? No, no, it doesn't. Spoiler alert. The Bible does not say that you are going to be happy, healthy, and wealthy just because you're a Christian. In fact, it says that you're going to suffer during, you know, during, during your tenure here on earth. So rather than worrying about living your best life now, Christianity is about your best life then. And right now is the life that you have to endure 
It's got good things and it's got bad things, but it's imperfect. But if you didn't know that, if you didn't know that much about Scripture, then you could easily be distracted and say, hey, this guy claims that this is Christianity and I have no way to tell him that he's a liar and show him, you know, open up the, the Bible off the bookshelf of things I don't believe and say, no, I don't believe this, but uh, here are all the verses that say that you're lying and uh, wrong. And oh, this verse says that we should stone you if you claim to be a prophet and you're wrong. So, you know, but in addition to being loads of fun to correct somebody who's, who's completely incorrect about theology and takes a stance that maybe they shouldn't be taking, it also avoids that true Scotsman fallacy. The true Scotsman fallacy is when, uh, say, you know, you're, you're saying this, you know, somebody says all Christians are bad. And then they give an example. They say, here's Joe Schmo, and he is a bad person, and he is a Christian, therefore he's a bad Christian. And then somebody else says, aha, but that guy is not actually a true Christian. Now, if it was based off of nothing, then it's a true Scotsman fallacy. You say, well, you can't just pick and choose and say, you know, this guy's a Christian, this guy's not a Christian, based on, you know, whether or not you want them on your team, whether you want them to represent you. But if you actually know what Christianity teaches, how it says you should act, what you should say, what you should believe, you know, things basic, fundamental, like you have to believe these things in order to be a Christian. And yes, it is that strict. You believe these things to be a Christian, and if you believe something that is contrary to that, then you're not a Christian. If you know what those boundaries are, then you can say, uh, well, you know, I don't agree with Christianity, but that guy is not saying what Christianity says. Christianity actually says yada, 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 right? So reason number two why you should understand scripture and you should study it is not for the sake of yourself, but for the sake of other people who may say that they're Christians. And you can say, no, the Bible says this. And you're supposed to listen to it because you're supposed to believe that it's God's word. Boom. Roasted. <laughs> so go back through the list again. Reason number three, you want to avoid the straw man fallacy. You, you don't want to be that guy who's like, ah, I've got this question that no Christian can answer. You know, how can there be a God if suffering exists in the world? And you just didn't use Google and realize that everybody and their mother for the past 2,000 years has asked this question and studied it. And you can get all these resources to read about all of these answers that you think are really clever. Don't be that guy. That's embarrassing to be that guy. So yeah, avoid the straw man fallacy. If you're going to oppose Christianity, know what it actually is. Number two, the no true Scotsman fallacy. If you're going to, even if you're going to oppose Christianity, when somebody claims to be a Christian and claims to speak or act on behalf of Christianity, it's a benefit for you, for others, for them even, to be able to say, no, actually, I don't believe your religion, but this is what your religion teaches. And to set them straight. And again, it's a load of fun. <laughs> and you knew this was coming. You knew this was coming. As, so, as soon as you saw this outfit that I had on, you're like, oh, I know what he's going to tell me. But you had to wait through this entire video to get to this point where you would be right. <laughs> the number one reason, obviously. The number one reason why you, as a non-believer, should study Scripture is because it's true. Simple as that. I don't, I don't first believe the Bible and then try to make up excuses for why it's true. The, the Bible is true, therefore 
I follow it. I believe it. I believe it's true. I acknowledge that it is objectively true. It is accurate. It is all the things that it needs to be. You should study scripture because it's true. This is like any other field. If you wanted to understand any field, if you had a disagreement about gravity or the shape of the earth, you should study those things. And eventually, hopefully, if you have the resources that give you the right information, then you'll come to the conclusion that's correct. And it's the same thing with, with scripture is you should study scripture because it'll help you become familiar with what is correct. Now, I want to be clear about this. It is not your brilliance or lack thereof that makes you a Christian, even though you're not right now, right? In scripture, we are told that faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. So by reading scripture, this is a way that God has chosen to communicate with you, to communicate truth with you, to hopefully and eventually create faith. So you have trust that these true things are in fact true and trusting in them has positive consequences. But in scripture, this is, this is, this is what it claims and whether it's true or not, you know, that's a different question. But scripture says, this is how you come to the realization that it's true, by interaction with scripture, by these other means of grace, by these means by which God has chosen to reveal things to you in a way that you believe them. Not solely intellectually, though that is a component, not solely emotionally, though that is also a component, but because faith is this connection to the truth. Faith is a trust in the truth. So yeah, you're not a Christian, but you just got three good reasons why you should be studying the Bible. Number three, you want to avoid the straw man fallacy? You don't want to be that guy who's caught saying, oh, well, I have this opposition to Christianity that nobody has ever thought of before, and you didn't use Google first and find out that, you know, Thomas Aquinas dealt with it and, you know, uh, whatever. Don't be that guy. Number three, avoid the straw man fallacy. Number two, avoid the true Scotsman fallacy. Know how to differentiate, to distinguish between somebody and something that is Christian and counter to Christianity. Somebody claims to be a Christian and they do something non-Christian. You say, hi, you are acting in a non-Christian way. Maybe that doesn't mean that you're a non-Christian, but this is what the Bible says. And of course, that's a load of fun to correct other people all the time. Isn't it great to be right all the time? I should know. Well, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm not right all the time. That's a joke. But I am correct about this. The number one reason why you should study the Bible as a non-believer, that's the way that God has promised to give faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. This is how God has chosen to communicate faith, to communicate, to give you that ability to trust. And even if there isn't a, I don't want to say supernatural, even if there isn't a non-physical component of this, if it's true purely on an intellectual level, if the Bible is true just purely on a historical, practical, intellectual level, and there's nothing spiritual whatsoever about it, the way that you come to that conclusion is by understanding it more. So even if, even if, and that's not the way it is, but even if that was the way it is, that would be beneficial for you. So three excellent, amazing, 
super good reasons, which you can't argue with because they're so good, why you as a non-Christian should study and know the Bible, should know Christianity, and be so familiar with it that you're just this beacon of light to everyone else. I hope you had fun, and I hope you, <laughs> I hope you really get into that text because you know there's some good stories in there. Maybe you might, maybe you might be a little bit better prepared. And I will see you later. Have a wonderful weekend. Your 50 caliber gospel word of the day, name of the day, is Barabbas. Let's get into it. So the name Barabbas, it's only mentioned in the crucifixion account in the four Gospels in the New Testament. And not much information is given about this guy, this Barabbas. You're told that he was an insurrectionist, that in fact he murdered people in the insurrection. You're told that he's a robber. You're told that he's just generally a bad dude, right? This guy had done some horrible things and as a result, he brought on this death penalty. He brought on this punishment that he absolutely deserved. Without question, he deserved to be put to death. Now, there was a Jewish tradition, Pilate says, that at this time, one of the prisoners would be, be released. Now, this is Pilate trying to get, get out of uh, crucifying Jesus because he knows that there's no, there's no case against Jesus. How would he crucify this guy who hasn't really done anything wrong? You know, this is why he washes his hands. But he says, okay, now it's tradition that we release one prisoner. So who do you want me to release? This guy, Jesus, who's done nothing wrong, or this guy, Barabbas, who's done all of these things wrong, and you know him. He's a famous insurrectionist. He's infamous. He's a terrible person. He's a murderer. Who would possibly choose to release the murderer, the one who deserves death? Now, the crowd gets stirred up by Caiaphas, by the high priests, by, by those who want Jesus put to death. And they start chanting, give us Barabbas, release Barabbas, 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 release him. I mean, to Pilate's chagrin, because again, this guy's a murderer. Why would he want to release him back into society? Meanwhile, this Jesus guy, he didn't do anything wrong. He's got no reason to be put to death. But what happens is that Barabbas is released. Barabbas, who deserves death, ends up being set free. And Jesus, who doesn't deserve death, ends up dying in his place. You see where I'm starting to go with this, maybe. So the name Barabbas, if you listen to somebody like Origen or you listen to some of the, uh, the church fathers, they'll say his name is actually Jesus Barabbas. First name, Jesus, last name, Barabbas. Yeah, you can, you know, I could see that, but it's a common enough name, Jesus, Joshua, right? But the name Barabbas, that's where it's important. What does the name Barabbas mean? Well, the name Barabbas is, it's Aramaic. It's Bar, if it, was, if it was Hebrew, it would be Ben, like Benjamin, Benjamin, but Bar Abbas, Bar Abba. 
son, this is what the name Bar means, Abba, father, son of the father. This is what the name Barabbas means. This son theology, this son language is used in other places in scripture. For example, if you look at Matthew 16, you've got this conversation where, where Jesus is asking Peter, he says, you know, who do these people, who do the men say that, or who, who do they say that the son of man is? The son of man, he's using this sonship language. And then Peter confesses, well, who, well Jesus first asks him, he says, well, who do you say I am? Uh, and Peter says, you are, you know, you are Christ, the son of the living God, the son of the living God. Jesus says, who is the son of man? You are the son of the living God. And Jesus says, you are Simon Bar-Jonah. You are the son of Jonah, which that's, that's his dad's name, right? That's, that, that's Peter's dad's name. So this Bar, B-A-R, Bar-Abbas, Bar-Jonah, uh, Bar-Nabas, Barnabas, this is, this is an Aramaic term that just means son of. So son of the father. That's an interesting, it's an interesting selection. Son of the father. So this son of the father, sometimes called Jesus Barabbas, and Jesus, the real son of the father, are both standing up there. One is a murderer and deserves to die. He doesn't make a defense for anything that he did. He got himself in this situation and now he's going to be put to death. And then Jesus is there. If it wasn't for Jesus, this man would be dead. The, the theology, this 50 caliber theology within the name Barabbas recalls this story, the intricacies of this story. Is this guy, this guy's a sinner. This guy's a sinner who deserves to die. And in his place, Jesus dies. Because Jesus dies in his place, he is able to have a new life and be set free. Now, if he chooses to spoil that life and commit another murder, then he gets put to death, right? But Jesus takes on the penalty for this man's sin in the most literal sense you could think. This man deserves to die. Jesus takes on that punishment of death. Jesus didn't do anything to, com to, to, to warrant being put to death. And yet, he suffers that punishment anyway. So the name Barabbas and the story of Barabbas you can think about and you can remember the entirety, well, the, the crux of the gospel, and I mean crux, the cross of the gospel. When Jesus died in the place of someone who deserved to die, when because of Jesus' death, someone who did nothing, did nothing to contribute to his own life. Barabbas was as good as dead. Barabbas was a dead man walking and did nothing to contribute to his life. Jesus gave him life by suffering death in his place. Barabbas, the son of the father, was saved by the true Barabbas, the true son of the father. Barabbas, he was a bad guy, right? He was a bad guy who got, who got saved. He was a bad guy who was forgiven. He was a bad guy, a sinner like you, that Jesus died for and saved. Barabbas, son of the father. This is your 50 caliber gospel word of the day. As a Christian combative, scripture is your arsenal. 
And while you should be familiar with your entire arsenal, there are also certain things within your arsenal that pack a little bit more punch than others. I'm talking about certain words, phrases, prayers, and names that even when taken in isolation, pack that solid gospel punch, that condensed gospel, which is why your 50 caliber gospel word of the day, name of the day, is Jesus. Let's get into it. Why is this a 50 caliber gospel word of the day? Well, the obvious answer is that the entire Bible is about Jesus. The entirety of the gospel is about Jesus. The Bible is about, it will records the history about what happened, what, what caused the need for a savior. You know, the fall of mankind, Adam and Eve's sin, bringing of death into the world, and the necessity of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, to come down and take on human form and die for the sins of mankind. And all of that's explained. You've got all the sacrificial system all explained. You've got all the prophecy pointing forward to Jesus explained. You've got all the stuff that happens in creation explained. You've got all this stuff, and it's all about Jesus. So that should be, you know, <laughs> that should be reason enough for it to be the gospel word of the day. But it gets better than that. Jesus, that's the, uh, that's the English version. If we, when we say Jesus, that's that's how it comes across in English. But this name actually translates, okay, so the Greek version is Jesus, all right? Jesus, Jesus, still pretty close, right? Well, let's keep going back in time. Let's go to the Hebrew. The Hebrew version of the word Jesus, we often shorten to Joshua, but the Hebrew version is Yehoshua or Yehoshua, Yehoshua, Joshua. <laughs> you see how that kind of, how that, 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 that kind of contracts there a little bit. Well, Joshua itself is a name, yes. And in fact, it was a name that was, that was plenty popular, especially among, especially among the Jews. And this is because of what it meant. Well, obviously, Joshua, if you remember, Joshua, uh, Joshua fought the Battle of Jericho. So Joshua was an important figure in history. But on top of that, the name Joshua itself is a combination of two words. It's a combination of the word. The first, the first half is Yahweh. Yahweh, it's the name of God. It's the proper name of God. Yahweh, then Yasha is a second name. Yahweh Yasha, Yahweh Yasha, Yehoshua, Joshua. <laughs> you see how this how this kind of translates into it like that. Yahweh Yasha, Yahweh is the proper name of God. This isn't just talking about Elohim. This is just isn't just talking about the gods out there or some god or whatever. But this is talking about the God of the Bible, the God of your forefathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God, you know, that God, the the only real God, right? So, or uh, Yahweh. And then the second part, Yasha, deliverance, salvation. Deliverance is, is, is probably better. So Yahweh, deliverance. Yahweh delivers or Yahweh is deliverance. One or the other. Yahweh saves. Yahweh is salvation. It can be translated anything like that. So it's actually Joshua, Jesus, Yehoshua. This is actually a way, the name itself talks about the gospel of God. This talks about the gospel that saves us, because God saves us, right? Who saves us? Yahweh. What does Yahweh do? Yasha. Saves us. Delivers us. Great, right? Well, everybody has, you know, everybody in their mother's name and their kid's Joshua, and it's fantastic, because every time you say their name, you're saying, God saves us, which is true. I think it's better than that. Go to Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. Here you have Mary being told what to name her baby, and why? Well, you should name your baby Jesus. 
because he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. So all of the other times you have Joshua. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. Or you have other people named Jesus or Yehoshua or whatever. All the other times you have it there, that name given to them is pointing up to God. It's saying, look, look at, I mean, or look at the cross or whatever. Look at, look at, look at the God of our fathers. This is the God who saves. Every other time that name is used, it's pointing away from the individual and it's pointing to God. It's pointing to Yahweh except in this one instance. In this one instance, Matthew 1, 21 explains it perfectly. God is salvation, right? Name your child God is salvation because he will save his people from their sins. This isn't just name your child Joshua, name your child Jesus because God will save people from their sins. No, 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 no. This is Matthew chapter 1 telling you that Jesus is God. Definitively, Jesus is God. Not God, yeah, like I said, not God will save the people from their sins, but this is saying you will name your child Jesus because he will save his people from his sin, from their sins. He will be the deliverance. He will be that salvation. The name Jesus, the name Joshua, pre-existed the incarnation of Christ. It pointed forward to this point in time. It was saying, look forward, you're going to have a Savior. Look forward, you're going to have a Messiah, a Christ. Look forward, look forward, look forward, look to God, look forward. And then it gets to Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. And it says, here it is. Here it is. This is the guy. This is God. This is true man and true God. Name him Jesus because he he will save his people. He will save his people. That's you. That's the faithful. That's those who put their trust in the saving power of Christ on the cross. Because he, God, Jesus, will save his people from their sins. They brought upon this punishment on themselves. They deserve damnation. They deserve death. That's the law. But they will be saved by Jesus. They will be saved by Yahweh. That's the gospel get it? All that packed into that word, Jesus. Yahweh Yasha, Yehoshua, Jesus, Jesus. Because he will save his people from their sins. And that's why the name Jesus is today's 50 caliber gospel word of the day. You take care. As a Christian combative, Scripture is your arsenal. And while everything in your arsenal is useful and should be applied properly, there are some rounds that hit a little bit harder than others, even when taken in isolation, whether it's a word or a phrase. So your 50 caliber gospel word of the day is Splach Nitzel. Let's get into it. So 
So the word splachnizomai is probably a word that you've heard before, even if you don't realize that you've heard it. A lot of times when you have translations, you'll have it translated as showing compassion, a specific type of compassion, actually. This isn't just a, I kind of feel bad for somebody, you know, I have a little bit of sympathy for a person, something like that. But splachnizomai, this Greek word splachnizomai, it sounds funny. This Greek word is a very special type of compassion. Now, there's, there's this, this, this concept of a seat of emotions within your body. So, for example, you think about a heart versus a mind when you're using phrases like, you know, follow your heart, or I feel that in my heart, or I'm thinking with my heart instead of my mind. But in this case, splanknizomai is referring to the sort of splanknoi, the area of your innards, your guts, your intestines, your kidneys, that kind of good stuff. Now, this is the seat of emotion, according to the Greek. And Splachnitsomai means to have your guts, your innards churned, to have them, have them twisted, have them, you know, well, let's go through a few examples because I guarantee you felt Splachnitsomai before. This is a type of, this is a type of sadness, a type of compassion that you feel in your gut. This could be an example where, say you're a parent and you have a child who who falls and they hurt themselves and, and they're in pain and they're crying and they desperately need their mother or they desperately need their father. You feel splachnizomai. Your innards are churned as you emotionally have compassion. So it's not just, it's not just compassion as we use it as a, as a shallow term in the English, but it's a powerful, powerful Greek word. This is the kind of word that you would use Maybe you're visiting somebody at the end of life, or you're visiting somebody's family while a family member of theirs is in the hospital. And you're talking to them and you see the grief in their eyes and you see the pain and the suffering that they're going through as someone that they love is going to be taken from them. And you feel your guts churn, splachnitsomai. Maybe you're a mother, you're pregnant, you've got a child on the way, and then you get news from the doctor that you're gonna have a miscarriage that your child has died, and now you must deliver your dead child into the world. That's splachnitsomai. That's your guts being churned, this visceral, the, the very meaning of the word visceral, this absolute visceral sensation of pain brought on by emotion. This, this combination of sadness and compassion, and the, all of these emotions that we have that just work together and we don't really have an English word for, so you often see the translation as just compassion. But this is a special word, like I said, this is the, uh, the 50 caliber gospel word of the day. This is that word that's just going to slam right into your heart and take out the other half of your body. And there's only a few times that it's actually used in scripture. There's only a few specific times that scripture uses this powerful word. In total, there are 12 times when this word is brought up in scripture. There are 12 times. Eight of these times, it's used to describe Jesus, what Jesus feels. Three of these times, it's used in the context of a parable. And every single time in those parables, the character that has this, the character that has this splachnitsomai, this, this compassion, this visceral sadness, this is a character that represents God. And one time in Scripture, it's used as a prayer. Now, let me break it down for you. I've got the list right here. Matthew 9, 36, Jesus sees the crowds and he sees that they don't know what, what's going on. They don't have a leader. 
They don't have a shepherd. And he says, the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. He feels compassion. He feels splak nitsomai on these poor people who are going through life without a leader. Here are some other examples. Matthew 14, 14 and Mark 6, 34. Jesus feeds the 5,000. He has compassion on them. Splak nitsomai because he sees that they're hungry. The same thing happens in Matthew 15, 32 and Mark 8, 2 when he feeds the 4,000. He feels splak nitsomai. In Matthew 20, verse 34, Jesus heals two blind men when he has splak nitsomai on them. Mark 1, 41, he heals a leper when he has splak nitsomai. Luke 7, 13, Jesus raises a widow's son. This widow is grieving at the death of her son. And Jesus has splak nitsomai on this widow, this grieving woman. In the parables, Matthew 18, 27, the parable of the unforgiving servant. This is when the master sees that the servant is unable to pay, unable to pay his debt. And he has splagnitzomai on the servant, and he forgives the debt. In Luke 10, 33, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Well, you can guess this one. The Good Samaritan sees the man dying by the side of the road and has splagnitzomai on this man. Luke 15, 20, the parable of the prodigal son. The son goes wastes all of his money, a bunch of bad stuff happens, and his father is out there waiting, waiting for his son to return. And when he sees his son returning, he has splak nitsomai. His guts are churned with compassion and love for his son. And there's one time in the Bible, there is one time in all of Scripture where the word splak nitsomai is not used either to describe Jesus or in a parable by Jesus about Jesus. This is in Mark 9.22. And pay attention to how this is used. Go and read that for yourself. Mark 9.22. There's a father who has a son who's possessed. Possessed since birth. He says he's, he, this, his, his son is tormented by this demon. Being thrown into the fire. So he, so he hurts himself and he burns himself. And this son, this son is just is constantly in pain and his father too is constantly in pain because he has to see his son endure so much suffering all the time. His father has this pain and he asks Jesus to share this pain. He says, Master, he says, Jesus, have splaknitsomai, have compassion, have mercy, heal my son, set my son free. If it's possible, that's the operative word. That's the operative phrase the Father uses, and Jesus catches it and corrects him immediately. Yeah. If it's possible. Are you kidding me? Of course it's possible. All things are possible from God. And then Mark 9.24, you have one of the most powerful prayers in the Bible. I believe. Help my unbelief. These are the words of the Father, the possessed Son. And Jesus, after being begged, for splagnitzomai. Jesus has compassion. Jesus heals this son. And by that healing, he heals the father as well. The son is suffering demonic possession. And the father is suffering to see his son suffer. Splagnitzomai. It's a powerful word. It describes the sensation that only God has perfectly. That we ask God for perfectly. Splagnitzomai. This is what God feels when he looks down and he sees his people suffering. When he sees the people suffering from sin, from calamity, from disease, 
from experiencing the loved ones around them suffering? Splach nitsomai. This is a word of God, not just because it's in Scripture, but because it's a word that describes God. A word that describes God in a way that other words maybe describe a bunch of different things. But this word is only used, only used to describe God in Scripture. So your God, your Father in heaven, the Son who died for you, and the Holy Spirit who gives you that faith, that God is not only capable of this amazing compassion, this amazing gut-churning emotional splagnitsomai, not only is he capable of that, but he has that. And because he has that, he has that compassion for you, he died for you. He died for you and he forgave your sins. He saw you languishing in your sin. He saw you deserving of death. He saw you with a debt that you could never pay. And he forgave it. He paid it for you. Splak nidsomai. Remember that word. That's your 50 caliber gospel word of the day. As a Christian combative, Scripture is your arsenal. And while you should definitely know everything in your arsenal and know when and how to use it, there are certain things that hit a little bit harder than others. There are certain words or phrases or prayers when taken, even in isolation, pack that gospel punch a little bit harder than other individual words and phrases. So your 50 caliber gospel word of the day is Tetelestai. Let's get into it. this word to tell us time. What does it mean? Why is it important? Why is it the 50 caliber gospel word of the day? Well, to tell us is a word maybe, maybe you know, maybe you don't know, but you almost certainly know part of the word. Telos. Now, telos is a Greek word in itself. It's a root word, but you probably know it from something like the word telescope. A telescope is one of these extending devices. It's like a tube that you look through and you can see far away. You can scope from far away. And it's this device that has these you know, these incremental, these segments that extend until it's fully useful. I've got the cameras on a tripod right now. The tripod, it extends. It's got these segments and it extends. It's a telescoping tripod. Once it reaches that final stage, then I can put the camera on it and I can use it. Once you have a telescope fully extended, then you can look through it and you can use it. The purpose of the device is accomplished when it is fully telescoped when it has reached its telos. So the word tetelosthai has to do something with telos, reaching an ultimate conclusion, an ultimate point where its use can finally be enjoyed, right? So the word tetelosthai, the word telos is used a few times in, in, in Greek. It's, it's a fairly common word, although there are times when it has a very specific meaning, like, like the meaning of life. What is the telos of life? 
there are only two times in Scripture where the word specifically, where the word tetelestai is used. They're both in John chapter 19, verses 28 and 30. In verse 28, Jesus is thirsty. He says, I thirst. And this was to fulfill the Scriptures. Tetelestai means, in this case, to fulfill. This was to fulfill the Scriptures. And then, of course, they bring him, they bring him the wine vinegar, and he drinks it. And then Jesus says that powerful word again. He says it out loud. He says, Tetelestai, and he yields up his spirit. Jesus says, it is finished. Now, this is a very, very powerful word. Because if you think all the way back to the beginning of, of Scripture, if you think all the way back to Genesis, you have this problem where you have Adam and Eve. They sin, they're kicked out of the garden, all the sin corrupts the earth, and, and it just... It's just trouble from then on, right? They screw up everything for everybody. Thanks a lot, Adam and Eve. But there's a promise of redemption. In Genesis chapter 3, there's this first promise of redemption that eventually someone will come and set everything right. Well, let's fast forward to the New Testament. Jesus is born. Jesus grows up a bit. Jesus starts his, his, his gospel ministry. He starts going around. He collects disciples. He teaches people. Uh, and he eventually trains these disciples. He catechizes them. And he, and he puts them through seminary, basically. He trains them to go and be pastors. But there's one event that stands out in particular, and this is the crucifixion event. In this event, Jesus actually, he's on the cross, and he's doing something, a once, I don't want to say once in a lifetime, once in eternity, once in an eternity event on the cross. Everything in Scripture culminates to this final point when Jesus is on the cross. All of the sin that has been corrupting and hurting people, all of the sin that has been causing people to have this debt, this, this, this separation from God that needs to be addressed. Finally, you have this God-man Jesus. He's a man so he can pay for the sins of man. And he's God so he can pay for the sins of all men. And he's this perfect sacrifice and everything lines up perfectly. And Jesus is on the cross and he says that word, tetelestai, it is finished. He yields up his spirit, for nobody can take God's spirit from him, but he yields up his spirit. He yields himself over to death itself. And in so doing, he pays for the debt of mankind. Tetelestai is present tense. It is finished. That's very important for you to remember. It's not Jesus saying, well, there's, there's a few more steps. We have to, you have to do a few more things after this. You know, I paid for some of the sin, but you've got to go and pay for the rest of your sin on, on your own. No, it's, not, it's not that at all. It is finished. It's this singular point, this singular event in history where it's all finally sorted out. Jesus finally pays for it all. He finally defeats sin, death, and the devil there on that cross. And all that's left is for this, for this grace, for this, this wonderful thing to be delivered to us. And it is delivered to us. It's given to us in faith that we receive through Scripture and baptism and through the Lord's Supper, these means of grace. But that singular point, that it is finished point, that's when everything changes. That's when everything is set right. It is finished, he says, to tell us now. That's a lot of gospel to pack into one word. This was your 50 caliber gospel word of the day. 
tell us now.